was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just the slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are study various. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, Series 2, Episode 6. Your presence in the Cubbyhole this week is very much appreciated. If you're new around here, a reminder that we're available to stream and download on all good podcasting apps or platforms, and we have a decent back catalogue of episodes for your delectation. In Series 1, we reviewed each Bond film in order, culminating in a series finale where we revealed our official Cubbyhole Bond films ranking. And uh, so far in this series, we've had the pleasure of interviewing plenty of Bond fans, as well as those talented people who've been lucky enough to be involved in the production of the films we all know and love. And the show is nothing without you, the listeners, so don't be shy, do get involved. Join us over on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or via email, rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. We always love to hear your reaction to the topics we've discussed, and of course, feel free to send us questions and topics. As ever, we'll pick as many as possible to feature in the Q Branch segment. Now, looking back on our previous episode, we spoke to stunt expert John Orty on the incredible stunts performed over the years in Bond. We discussed our 007 best gadgets of the franchise, and Phil shared his bizarre theory that every silly name actually is an alias. But uh, let's jump into this week's episode with our usual hosting team. Uh, I've known them for several decades, so I assume their names are not aliases, but uh, you never know. Firstly, he's the Tom Jones to my Matt Monroe. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? I'm very good, thank you, Martin. But my real name is Stephanie Broadchest. I thought you'd have, uh, I thought you'd have clocked that by now. I'm very good. I'm a bit distracted. I'm on a family WhatsApp group, and they're all sharing these elaborate breakfasts that they've been eating this morning. But it got me, it got me thinking actually about food in the Bond films, because in the books, Fleming does amazing descriptions of all these lavish meals that Bond eats. But he seems to sort of turn down more food in the films, doesn't he? He doesn't eat um, Kamal Khan's stuffed sheep's head turns down Hugo Drax's uh, cucumber sandwich, as we said a bit ago. The only breakfast I can remember him having is from Russia with Love, when he has a green fig yogurt coffee very black, which, which which doesn't seem very exciting for Bond, does it? I'm always a bit disappointed by that one. Yeah, does he technically not have breakfast in Live and Let Die? Is that not a... Can we, can we class it as that? I suppose it's just coffee, isn't it? Yeah, he's more a drinker in the films. He does a lot of drinking. He doesn't do an awful lot of eating. But maybe this is a thing. Maybe we could think of some things that uh, Bond and the villains could all eat and we could open our own cafe, like the James Bond cafe. And every item on the menu is based on a Bond character. So, you know, it's, it's like an odd jobs bibimbap, sushi Tanaka style. It's served to you in a bathhouse. I tell you what, I can't wait for the Bond surprise. Oh, yeah, of course. That's, that's our, uh, our showpiece dessert. Yeah. We just put popping candy in it so it only feels like it's going to blow up. Or when the restaurant inevitably folds, perhaps that can be the finale, couldn't it? Just <laughs> explode the whole restaurant. What, and claim the insurance? That's going to look good on the form, isn't it? What happened? Bomb surprise. Shouldn't have been that much of a surprise, really, should it? And secondly, he's the Eric Sarah to my John Barry. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? 
Oh, I'm very well, thanks, Martin. Um, personally, I don't mind being compared as Eric Serra. As, as you know, I'm, I'm still very much a, a fan of his, even though he is somewhat divisive. So once again, as we always do each week, just a huge thank you to everybody that's been interacting with us on our social media channels. We had a great review on Apple Podcasts uh, recently, so from Adam643, who was saying that some podcasts offer you the moon, but this podcast delivers three genuinely funny guys talking about James Bond films. Thank you for, for your kind words. And if you do want to leave your reviews as well, then please do get in touch on our podcasting sites. We also had a lot of interaction from episode four. So Gavin Clark was mentioned that he was one very lucky to um, be able to visit Piz Gloria on a school trip way back in 1988. So that was also going back to our Switzerland delve deeply section. And of course, we had a lot of responses to our um, 007 best, of course, which looked at the, um, the Bond allies. A lot of people were getting in touch to say, why didn't we include kind of Eve Moneypenny or Felix Leiter? They were kind of main Bond allies that we are looking at later on. So we were, we were kind of focusing on the allies that are kind of more secondary in the film. So we had a lot of people kind of agreeing with our number one choice. I was not going to spoil it if you haven't listened to the episode already. But I was quite entertained by Chiro PL on Twitter, just as a really quick mention, who suggested Raul from Die Another Day should have been included. Yeah, I don't think he really does enough to be considered one of the seven best allies of the series. We should point out no. on the money penny thing, we, we did sort of decide doing the list. We were going to save up the MI6 massive for another top 007 later on, where we do the best Qs, the best Ms, money pennies, and so on. Felix Leiter just wasn't in there because he didn't get enough votes from any of us. Yeah, I think I had uh, David Hedison's obviously live and let die version, but uh, but you guys were not not keen. Surely the diamonds are forever lighter. Deserves some kind of place. Unsurprisingly, he didn't get any votes on Twitter either. So I, I think we're uh, we're pretty accurate on that score. Um, well, none whatsoever for diamonds are forever. Feelings lighter. That's surprising. No, no, he did a great job when he literally loses everything he's supposed to keep an eye on in that film. Felix, don't tell me you lost her. We lost her. We'll move on to the, the first segment of this week's episode on the scene. This week, we're going to take a closer look at Bond's eventful golf game with Goldfinger. We can't wait to share our thoughts on the scene. But first, we must give way to the great Alan Partridge to remind us what happens. Burly treating money bags are at Goldfinger and his bowler-hatted Korean caddy odd job are paired off for a round of golf with cinema legend Hawker the Caddy and Scottish skinflint Sean Connery. Shall we say a shilling a hole? But after 16 holes, Goldie calls Bond's bluff. What's your game, Mr. Bond? You didn't come here to play golf. Bond irresponsibly lobs a Nazi gold bar onto the ground for them to play for and the whole scene becomes a massive quote-off. Street rules of golf? But of course. Five iron whack! Nine iron, whack! Oh, bad luck, you're in the rough. Rummage in the green, rummage in the green. Oh, what a pity, there's his ball. That's not it, he plays a Slazenger one. Aha! 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 If that's his original ball, then I'm Arnold Palmer. It isn't, I'm standing on it. Why, you crap the old? <laughs> leave it. Let's have a little fun with Mr. Goldfinger. The fat man puts it and smogs off, and Bond mixes up his balls. It's your honor, sir. It's all right. Crap, he's gonna notice the ball switch. Oh, wait, he's hit it, few close one. I have to sink this to half the game, right? Pot. Oh, balls. You win, Goldfinger. <laughs> it seems I'm too good for you. Well, you play a Slazenger 1, don't you? This is a Slazenger 7. Here's my Penfold Hearts. You must have played the wrong ball somewhere on the 18th fairway. 
but we are playing strict rules of golf, so I'm afraid you lose the hole and the match. Take that! Then old job hat slams a statue and crushes the pesky Slazinger 7. The end. Thank you very much indeed, Alan. So this was uh, one of the scenes that I chose, one of my favourite scenes from one of the best James Bond films, of course, filmed at the other Stoke Park Country Club in Buckinghamshire. Lovely location, lovely setting. Love or loathe golf has to be agreed that uh, it's not the most exciting sport to watch someone else play. Uh, But I think it it fits perfectly with this moment in this film. The pausing in between the holes and the shots, plenty of time for Bond to do his probing, his meddling in Goldfinger's affairs and to spark the reaction from him. Uh, I mean, I guess it does help that we cut from the clubhouse straight to the final shot of hole 16. So we've cut pretty much the whole game out of the the film. I mean, I wonder what they were talking about in the first 15 holes. Uh, But yeah, I think I I really love that the dialogue just makes this a really, really entertaining scene. Pretty much all of the characters are entertaining in their own way. Of course, we've spoken many times about my favourite cameo, Hawker. All of his lines are just uh, exceptional. The the silence, as well as the dialogue, also works really well. This tension between the characters, the physical aspect of Gert Frobe's portrayal of Goldfinger is really impressive. And uh, particularly at the beginning, before they even start the uh, the golf, saying, how do you do? But there's kind of a pause and a little frown as he's, uh, he's and of course, Bond replies with his own stare as well. So I think the uh, the use of sound and silence really works quite well in combination. Yeah, I agree. I think this is a superb scene. Bond is is trying to play off Goldfinger. Goldfinger isn't kind of falling for it. He knows that something's amiss here. And there's just little great moments. And, you know, as you say, the physicality of Goldfinger and Oddjob together, you know, they're quite short, but quite stocky and imposing men. You know, there's a sense of power behind them. And it is just brilliant, you know, that mix of where there's not a huge amount of audio or sort of music throughout the scene it's literally just reliant on the sounds around them so you know the sounds of the golf shots and the bird song almost and things like that in the background and it's it's just brilliant the way that that scene all builds up because you if you'd have written that on paper you wouldn't have kind of thought of it as worthy of being in the film because it just it's basically just two men playing golf on paper but it's it's literally the way that that's delivered is so intense yeah, I agree 100% with you on the ambient sound and the lack of music. It just relaxes you into the scene and immerses you into the characters and what's going on in the game. Uh, one note on the physicality is also just the costuming of it is incredible, isn't it? You know, we'll talk a little bit about Oddjob, but Goldfinger's trousers, you know, they're, they're sort of rolled up quite a long way into his socks. So he looks preposterous as well as acting preposterous. And Connery's little pork pie hat as well is a, is a sort of very strange touch, sort of getting into that character of a guy who could feasibly be of the class to be playing at the club um but odd job is interesting because obviously that sort of visual disconnect of this korean in a bowler hat and a butler suit it sort of baffles connery's bond he, he sort of doesn't quite know what to make of him but of course barry's one musical cue that does come up here is the odd job like motif and that gives us as the audience a clue and information that bond doesn't have namely that this is Jill's murderer. We know that long before Bond starts to suspect it. So, you know, there's a really interesting thing of we're a bit on edge because we know that he's going around with a killer. We don't quite know if he's going to do anything. And of course, he doesn't in the scene, but it just sets you on edge. It just makes you that little bit uneasy about the whole thing. 
Yeah, I think uh, it works really well. Uh, I particularly liked when Goldfinger says that he'll stake the cash equivalent of the £5,000 gold bar. Uh, just the, the way that he delivers that kind of a shrug of the shoulders. Of, of course, I'm rich enough to, to stake that money. Uh, who do you think you're, you're playing with? It, there's also so many little moments where he proves how uncouth and how sort of how much of a cheat he is. The fact he tries to disrupt Bond's swing on that 17th hold when the gold bar's suddenly at stake. The fact that he jumps his turn, I think, doesn't he, on the 18th uh, hole. You know, Hawker's saying, but it's your goal to go. And guys, oh, it's fine. He's just a fat idiot, isn't he? Hawk is interesting in this, isn't it? Because, of course, as we, we sort of mentioned when we talked Goldfinger, he is employed by the club. So technically, Goldfinger is his boss. And yet he's just been watching all of this for 16 holes, let's remember. He sees how Bond is acting and how Goldfinger is acting. And he understands that Bond is the good guy in this and, and sort of admires him. And hence why he's suddenly so eager to help him and gets fully on board with this conspiracy to switch the balls up. I think Jerry Duggan is the uh, the great underappreciated actor of the 20th century. It's certainly true that Duggan has this very expressive, characterful face, and there's a lot of very important face acting going on in this, going back to the fact there's not much dialogue, you're sort of immersed in the calmness of the game. Uh, we've talked about just the, the sheer look of absolute smugness Gert Frober gives it when he sinks that long putt, but also things like Connery's sly grin when he goes into the rough, uh, you know, a couple of shots earlier as well. Yeah, I do love the I love the power dynamics we get in the scene. Well, we've mentioned that Goldfinger is pretty much the most powerful character. Obviously, he, he owns the club, Mr. Bond. But Bond, uh, I sense at the end of the game, am I right in reading for that final putt, Bond, if he sinks it, then it's a draw. Then maybe it goes to another shot uh, and Bond can win. But it seems like he deliberately misses, doesn't he? Just so he can have that lovely moment with the, the Slazenger 7. You know, yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I think that I think that is it. You have the game, you draw it, I think. Um, but yeah, I think Bond absolutely is deliberately missing that putt just in order to set up Goldfinger to make him as puffed up like a peacock as he can get him and then absolutely very calmly knock him down with the, well, hang on, this is the wrong ball, Goldfinger. And this probably reiterates why kind of Connery is the coolest of all the Bonds, really, because it's, it's just that sense of suaveness that he has. And it's just, you know, you get this, great kind of juxtaposition where it's obviously, you know, Goldfinger's got this sort of very bombastic, very excessive kind of gold-plated Rolls-Royce that he drives around in. And then you've got Connery as Bond in, you know, in the more stylish sports car with the Aston Martin DB5. It's just a great sort of mix of how the characters are so different from each other. You know, they're sort of, they're almost all the worlds, worlds apart, should I say. It's just a great way that, again, that, that plays out the fact that, you know, even though they're both quite posh, really, in terms of what their background is, they're, they're both kind of worlds away in terms of you know the elegance and and suaveness yeah 100 percent um i mean I, I don't know i don't know going back to what they, they've chatted about for 16 holes can you imagine hawker trying to chat with odd job because of course they're, they're, they're at a distance as you see them walking and i just think what are hawker and odd job ever going to talk about is hawker trying to make conversation i, I just get the vision that is um that odd job keeps accidentally losing golf balls out of his trousers. you lost another golf ball there mr odd job now, I think Hawker speaks fluent Korean and they're having a whale of a time. <laughs> Maybe this is the odd couple of ventures we never got odd job and Hawker's golf adventures. Hawker's having enough golf adventures. We were sending him off with Sylvia Trench the other week. He's, he's fine. He's got enough golf buddies at this point. But one last thing, you have to love a scene which is so relaxed but so tense at the same time that it becomes a literal heart-in-mouth moment when a golf ball falls off a tee. 
Like, I don't think I'm, you're so on edge when that happens. And that's the brilliance of the scene and how quiet Guy Hamilton has kept the camera, just allowing everything to play out in this very natural way, that that becomes this huge, intense moment. Did you switch him, sir? Uh-huh. Then we got him. If he doesn't notice a switch. So let's move now to the main feature of the episode. It's for your ears only, the interview segment, Who Holds Court? so to speak, in the cubbyhole this week, Adam. Oh, very nice user phrasing indeed. This is a really great interview this week. It's our first meeting with uh, an actor from the Bond series. Uh, it's Vijay Amritraj. He, of course, played Vijay in Octopussy. Prior to that, he was one of the best tennis players in the world through the 70s and the early 80s. And uh, yeah, we uh, spoke to him from his home in Los Angeles. Uh, and so, yeah, without any further ado, let's go over to one of our favourite allies from the series and an absolutely lovely guy to chat with. Here's Vijay Amritraj. Yes, I mean, you can start with any questions you want, but uh, the best preamble to it is, you know, how did I get into it? It's probably the most obvious one. And, uh, you know, I was playing Wimbledon uh, one year. I think it must have been um, 82. And uh, Cubby and Barbara were watching Wimbledon that year. And uh, they're very fond of tennis. Cubby was very fond of tennis. And uh, they came out to watch and, and said... Uh, you know, would you have uh, tea with us afterwards? And and uh, she, Barbara came down and spoke to me and uh, we had known each other from LA and we got together for some tea and I said, this is great because, I mean, you know, having tea with the Bond producer, that's it's, it's as big as you can get. And of course, strangely, they said that they had looked at a whole variety of actors of uh, Indian, Indian descent uh, for the role and uh, hadn't really come up with someone they thought would fit the part and asked if I'd done any acting and if I would consider it. And I obviously had a good laugh because this was at Wimbledon, you see, and uh, I had a good laugh and said, uh, you know, I haven't done anything, but I'd, I'd love to look at it. And uh, they said, well, we'd like you to do a screen test. And so they brought in an actor from America by the name of James Brolin. And uh, I think they were having a conversation with Roger Moore at the time to renew his contract for Octopussy. And uh, James uh, flew over from LA. John Glenn directed the screen test at Pinewood. And, uh, you know, I was thinking to myself the whole time, who can say they worked at Pinewood in the morning and played at Wimbledon in the afternoon, you know? Uh, not even uh, the great six actors who played Bond can say they played at Wimbledon, or neither can Roger Federer say he worked at Pinewood the same day. <laughs> so I, just, so I, I had a good laugh and I sort of did it thinking, you know, it's a really good laugh. And of course, uh, you know, who can argue with Bond, the character itself and the films that we all grew up with. And the earliest films I ever saw was uh, was Goldfinger. So after they had uh, gone through the dailies and all of it, they called me up and said, uh, we'd like to get you on for 14 weeks. And I said, listen, I, I'm on the tour. So they were kind enough to allow me to go off and play three tournaments and and then shoot for two weeks and go off and play two more tournaments and come back and do three weeks. That sounds like a really serendipitous moment then at Wimbledon. I mean, there are a few people who've transitioned from sports to film, uh, but it's usually at the end of their career, isn't it? And you were, uh, you had a great 20 plus year career in tennis. Uh, was, it, was it a bit strange kind of happening in the middle? You know, opportunities are like challenges, you know, they, they show up when they show up. You grasp them with both hands and uh, you 
take them on and uh, you put pressure on yourself because, again, as the great Billie Jean King said, pressure is a privilege. Very few people have this opportunity, this kind of an opportunity. So uh, I was obviously dead keen on doing it and I did it with uh, both eyes open. I had no, didn't know what to expect. It was my first picture and uh, pretty much most of my scenes or rather all of my scenes were with the great Roger Moore. So it was a question of... Uh, not just living up to certain kind of expectations, but not falling short of it at the same time. I guess that's a good point to ask. Sort of, what what are your favourite memories of, of having worked with Roger Moore? You sort of say all of your scenes virtually are with him. Uh, what what were sort of your favourite bits to shoot with him? Was was he very sort of you know incredibly generous with his time on set and off? What what sort of stand out as your best memories of Sir Roger? I think the first thing that comes to mind is my first day on the set. Barbara was kind enough to accompany me that day, opening day, to take me in, to introduce me to everyone. And then they were already in the process of shooting a scene at Pinewood on, I think it was stage two. And I walked in, we both of us stood way in the back, obviously looking at the shooting of the scene. And uh, the action had started, then it called action, the action had started and everyone was moving around and the scene was in progress. And suddenly, from way across the stage, Sir Roger sees me and he walked straight up to me before the director had shouted cut and walked right out of the scene and said, Vijay, we are delighted you accepted to work with us and uh, we are honestly proud to have you on the film with us. That completely broke the ice with me and him day one and uh, we became very good friends the next minute. It must have been incredibly exciting as well when you sort of got the call as well just to, to start filming. Was it, was it kind of a sense of, not apprehension, but were you, were you, sort of, you were sort of relishing the challenge? Film was entirely a love of mine, uh, whether it's making films, acting in films. I did some stage plays in school and so on. So I was very, very into it. I followed it very closely, followed the legend, legendary actors and actresses of the 60s, 70s and 80s and, and thereafter. So... When, when this opportunity came up and I was amazed that I actually got it, Kabi said to me, you know, don't try to act, just be original, just be yourself. That's why you're in the picture, the way you are. And so just be free to react to whatever a person says to you in the film. And uh, the other easy part was that my scenes were with, uh, with the great Roger Moore. He made things very simple for me. And he always said, you know, say what's comfortable for you under the circumstances. You don't have to stick exactly to the line. And so he added some things, he took off some things, and he himself said, oh, this would be fine. Vijay and I will do this, and uh, we'll do this scene ourselves. We don't need the stuntman for this. And so he made it a lot more interactive and easy. So the, the nervousness went away the moment he shook my hand. I was going to ask him, actually, because obviously in the film, the character is called VJ and, and is also a tennis player. Uh, did they change the character a lot from the way it was written once they knew you were going to play it? And were you involved much in that process? Well, the, the both, was, both were changed. The, first of all, the name was changed. It was easy for, for Roger to call me VJ rather than have some long-winded uh, name that uh, he would have found it hard to say as, as a throwaway line like he always did. So he said, why don't we just call him VJ? It's, uh, it's, it's easy. And I said, yes, I'll react to it a lot better. <laughs> uh, even, the, even the script, there were lots of changes that he made in between to set the scene and all of that. So he was very interactive and, and made it, uh, he kind of conformed to what the scene was rather than um, 
sticking to it. And and in those and in the Roger Moore's Bond movie, you could do that. I think it would have been harder to do it in uh, in Sean's movies. Yeah, I think it certainly seems like you're having fun on the set. That's what makes you one of the more lovable characters. I think one of the allies to the Bond character that you, you're smiling in so many of the scenes. Uh, what would you say? What was the most fun scene that you uh, you did? There were lots of uh, lots of scenes that uh, are very memorable for me. I mean, obviously the fight scene uh, with the uh, traveling and the in the three wheeler and, and the guys, the bad guys coming up on a jeep next to me and so on and. And that whole scene that took three, four days to do, it took me two days to practice driving that thing because it was a souped up three-wheeler that we didn't have in India. And uh, it, it was it, the, the stuff that went around it with uh, all of the extras that were involved in that long-winded, uh, long-winded scene was spectacular. You know, Glenn did it with, with such uh, panache. And uh, Roger at eight o'clock in the morning in India in blistering heat, you know, wearing a, dinner jacket and a black tie and, and a cigar in his mouth and walking like he belonged there in those circumstances. Uh, you know, there I am. I'm sweating in my double-breasted navy blue blazer and cravat and so on. And uh, we, did this, we did this whole scene a few times. And it wasn't easy because in one of the scenes, the stuntman was hurt badly, where the blade went through one of his arms. And I think he he had to go off and get stitches and come here. He came back to work the next day. And uh, towards the end of that scene, if you remember, the, the, the three-wheeler goes through the wall, which is actually a, a painting that comes down. And he, he drive right through the wall. And there's only a couple of inches on either side. So you have to hit dead center when you were going through with that three-wheeler. And the stuntman was supposed to do it. And uh, when we came to work that day, Roger said, oh, Vijay and I'll do it. And... Uh, I was thinking to myself, goodness gracious, you know, I've got a very expensive piece of cargo in the back of my three-wheeler. You know, I really don't want to hit the wall on either side. And uh, we ended up doing it. And he just tapped me on the shoulder and said, uh, Vij, you'll be fine. Just don't miss. And, and we went through and, it, and it, looked, it looked fantastic when the scene was done. So he was that kind of a guy where he made acting not just a pleasure but turned that work into pleasure and, and made it uh, very special for everyone in the scene. We've heard from a couple of our other guests that uh, Roger Moore was a little bit of a practical joker on the set. Uh, were you ever like victim to any of his pranks? Did you sort of see him uh, doing any of them? I always wondered how he didn't do comedy because he was incredibly funny, hysterical, and his storytelling ability was awesome. Let's not forget, also, just on a complete aside, when we were shooting at Pinewood, Christopher Marie was doing Superman on stage one, and we were doing Bond on two. And often, at lunchtime, I would have lunch in one particular area of the commissary at Pinewood, where Chris would join us in his cape. So there I am, sitting with James Bond in a black tie, and Christopher Reeve in a cape. I don't think I ever felt safer in my life, sitting with James Bond and Superman. And he would make cracks on these things on a regular basis. We'd walk off from lunch and walk into the set and, uh, and it's very much of a throwaway line when people would come and talk to him and he said, uh, you're very busy. He said, yes, I've been very busy. I just had lunch with Superman. I'm just going off to see if uh, Batman is available. Things like that. I mean, it was very much of a, and to people he didn't know. And of course, his anecdotes and stories that he told uh, at dinner time when we were in Rajasthan in India um, was quite, uh, quite spectacular. I remember one, 
evening, we were sitting together, all of us, by the pool, very hot outside. So we were sitting outside, at least it was cooler outside than anywhere else. And by the pool, and he's wearing like a safari suit, cigar in his mouth, loafers, and he's in the middle of telling a story. And uh, he paused in the middle of it and says, oh, just give me a minute. And he stepped away from the seat, put a cigar down at the edge of the swimming pool and dived right in. Safari suit, loafers and all. Into the pool, swam up and down, couple of laps, come back out, puts the cigar back in his mouth and continued the story without dropping and missing a beat. <laughs> we don't know whether to laugh or what, what we say. And he was, he was that kind of a guy. He, you know, he was very light on set and he was very, very light in his work. He always said, uh, Sean was an actor, I'm a star. You know, he, he was such a large personality. He, he smiled easily. He made everyone his friend. He put everyone at ease. And I think that's why all of his movies that he did, everyone loved him. And, and they, he was a very, very easy person to work with. Um, so in terms of the filming of Octopussy, roughly sort of how much of it was based at Pinewood and then how much was on location? And, and what was it like just being on location in Rajasthan with the whole Bond circus? Like, how does that work? Is it as luxurious off screen as, as on? Do you know, are there challenges to the setup? And what, what's that kind of experience like? Well, when James Bond troop arrives somewhere on location, it is run, <laughs> the only comparison I could draw to it is, the, is how Wimbledon is run every year. It is incredible precision. You don't even think that anybody's working when you go to Wimbledon. That's how great the championships is, which is why it's the most exquisite sporting event in the world. And when you look at Bond and the way they bring everyone in in the 747, they take over every piece of that town and everyone knows what they're doing. It is a, literally a Bond takeover of the city. And that's what they did in, in Udaipur. And, I was there with them for three weeks and uh, we did 11 weeks. I did 11 weeks at Pinewood in London. So a total of 14 weeks. But Cubby Broccoli was as nice a man as they come. The entire family was just spectacular to me and to the rest of the crew. And uh, Barbara and I became very, very good friends. And, and uh, she and Michael Wilson are just the most delightful people. I was going to ask him, obviously, with your introduction in Octopussy, we see you with the, the sort of the snake charming, with the the flute and obviously Bond walks up to you. Was that quite a challenging, being as sort of your introduction to the film, is that quite, was that quite a challenging sequence to film with the, um, obviously with, with a live snake as well? The screen test I did was that scene with the, with the snake when they had me do it during Wimbledon that year. And uh, they called up, they called me up and said, have you ever worked with a snake before? And I said, you must be joking. They said, no, the scene involves a snake. Uh, how long would you need to practice with it? I said, you, you can't be serious. So anyway, I said, I don't want to see the snake. I don't want to know the snake. I'm just going to come there and do it. Maybe I'll have four cups of coffee before it. Keep me going. Just let me do it that way. And finally, when I got to doing the scene, I said to the snake charm, I said, I guess the poison has all been taken out. And he said, well, yes, but you're going to have to leave a little bit in there. Otherwise, the snake dies. So what are you saying? The cobra is going to sit in front of me, hooded up, ready to strike, with a little bit of poison left, just in case. And he said, yes. He didn't, he didn't think it was funny. He thought it was, this is what you're supposed to do. That's, so I, I, did, I didn't even think twice about it. And uh, I remember telling John Glenn, I said, listen, you better get this on your first day. 
I do like how they asked you whether you had any experience. Like, there's not many snakes at Wimbledon, are there? <laughs> no, I mean, I take that back. I did play McIndoe once. Uh, <laughs> it is interesting just on that screen test, because, of course, in retrospect, we know that, um, you know, they were testing James Brolin with a view to sort of persuading Roger Moore to, to come back because he hadn't sort of officially signed on to play the part again. Were you aware that that was what was going on? Was, was it sort of odd because of that? And, and, yeah, what was sort of James Brolin... How was he kind of approaching that? Yes, I'm, I'm amazed that James Brolin actually came across from Los Angeles just to do the screen test. And I thought that was uh, quite out of the ordinary. But uh, listen, he, he looked great, you know, when he came in and they dressed him up in exactly the same way. And we did the screen test uh, the way they wanted. But, um, you know, he was, he was no Roger Moore. I certainly agree with you on that one. One of our favourite scenes is when you have the the tennis racket and you you hit the uh, the henchman over the head. Uh, was that one completely planned out? We feel like they missed a trick. They could have had some exploding tennis balls, perhaps, in the scene. But was that kind of a completely arranged, or uh, was there any room for ad libbing? I think there were several choices they went with, and uh, this was something that they devised with the chase sequence from the hotel. And uh, so it was a combination of both, where there was the chase sequence, the three-wheeler, the Jeep, open Jeep, and then the altercation, the fight sequence between the other guy jumping into the three-wheeler in the back and by handling it in the front and all of that. And so it made it much longer. There was, I think, one other thought process of a grenade being launched at us from somewhere and us hiding behind a bund, and uh, I had a racket in my hand, and and I turned around to Roger and say, "I got it," and I and I obviously volley that grenade back, and it explodes over on the other side, and uh, it was a shorter duration of time, but this fight sequence worked a lot better. So they had a lot of little aspects of that where it involved a little bit of pun on tennis in it. The line that I said in the back of the three wheeler. Roger says, "What have you learned so far?" The real question was, "What have you learned so far about the villain?" And uh, he then gave me that ad lib line to say, the, my back ends improved, got a huge laugh in the audience when, when I delivered it. And uh, so, you know, he threw in those kinds of fun lines that Roger really liked. We're a huge fan of John Glenn's five Bond films. Um, what was he like to work with? And did you get on with him really well? What was his kind of way of directing actors versus his way of, I guess, directing the action sequences? The director being the quarterback of the film, it, it's critical for him not just to have the talent to direct a picture, but he needs to have the personality to go with it. John had a, had a, a very good, easy way about him in making sure the people that he's working with have what they want, they're relaxed, and they're going to be able to deliver it 32 times if that's what is needed, and deliver the 32nd time like they're delivering the first one. So between John and Roger and Covey, they made the working environment, you know, seem like Disneyland. Speaking of Disneyland, uh, you're one of very few characters apart from Bond who gets to spend uh, a lot of time in Q's workshop. And I, I wondered what you, you sort of remember of filming those scenes. Is, is it as fun to be in just on the set as it is to watch? Uh, presumably there was also a lot of ad-libbing going on when you were filming that as well. Oh, my goodness. It was, it was awesome. I, I, couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't believe, actually, everything in Q's wo workshop worked including that plane in the opening sequence. And a guy actually did it, flying right through that hangar, sideways, twice. That's what's so great about the Bond pictures. There's nothing there that's a fake. It, it, it's, it's real. It, it actually happens. And the things work. Desmond, I mean, obviously, as he got older and older, it became more, more challenging for him. But, uh, you know, he was perfect. 
to watch his relationship with Bond, even before they opened their mouth, I was laughing. It was that kind of a relationship between Desmond and, uh, and Roger, especially Roger. Uh, the whole stage was set beautifully for them to do what they, what they do and, and the throwaway lines, like uh, when the guy climbs up that rope and, you know, it kind of collapses on him, you know, having problems keeping it up cue. I'm not quite sure that was in the script either. It's so easy to mess those up without the timing. And uh, that's what made those lines so great. You share most of your scenes in the film with, with obviously Roger and, and Desmond, but uh, were you on set much with uh, some of the other lead actors in the film? Obviously Maud Adams and Louis Jordan in, is in the, the, the backgammon sequence. Um, did, did you spend much time with them either on set or off? What are, you, what are your sort of memories of them that, uh, that stand out? Oh, a lot. I mean, Kabir Bedi was a friend, was a friend of mine. Uh, Maud Adams is a very good friend of mine. Actually, as a matter of fact, recently we had dinner together and we were on a, all of us were on a Zoom call together. Are there, are there regular octopusy Zoom calls? <laughs> <laughs> haven't seen haven't seen Christina in a long while, but I obviously catch up with Barbara a lot in London when I'm there. Often above that, no. I mean, it's uh, each of us are busy doing our own things. But I think when you look back at a movie like that and uh, see the people that you met. It gives you a great feeling of nostalgia, a great feeling of having learned something that uh, very few people have been fortunate to be able to do. Uh, Pierce and I have talked about this. He was, actually, he was actually a guest on my TV show where he says there are less people who played Bond than landed on the moon. And, uh, you know, I've been very fortunate to have actually known to some extent all the six people who actually played Bond. And I could see in each one of them why they played Bond because they literally had it in them to do it. And uh, Daniel has done such a great job and, and Barbara's pick of Daniel was just uh, splendid. And do you think that sort of the Bond films, they're, they're kind of a family really. It's sort of obviously when the actors, are, when you're in such a, a long filming session and it's obviously quite intense hours that you'd have to put in for, for the film. And do you think it becomes like a family atmosphere? Obviously you've mentioned Roger was quite playful in terms of his interactions and he'd try and make things quite lighthearted. Yes, you're absolutely right. The credit goes to Cubby first and uh, what they did and having dinners with everyone and being very much a part of it and being very much making it a part of family. And Barbara saw that, as did Michael Wilson. And uh, Cubby was very much of an all-encompassing, arms-around-everyone kind of family man. And, and Barbara has done that majestically, I should say. And, and uh, that's why these movies have succeeded the way they have. They've protected the... Uh, uh, Bond character so well. I mean, for a brand to last 60 years or something is unheard of, unseen, unheard of, and never will be. And I think that's what, that's the credit to the Broccoli family, that they're able to be able to protect this and still deliver and compete with everyone from Mission Impossible to the Bond movies and, the, and all the Marvel movies and all of that. And when you come out to see Bond, you know, you see Bond. And, uh, and the guy who plays him next is is going to have to wear those, you know, big shoes to fill. Absolutely. I mean, they weather every storm, don't they? I mean, the Bourne films have kind of come on, gone Mission Impossible will the same, but, but Bond is eternal. Um, Octopus is remembered as a really fun film, but there is quite a violent streak in it. And your death scene in particular, I think is incredible because it's so harrowing. Um, wh what are your memories of filming that sequence? Well, funny and nervous at the same time. Nervous because uh, when we were doing the scene and that entire lake scene, if you remember, was indoors at Pinewood. And the guy who was dropping this yo-yo with blades on it 
real blades on it. As he was standing up there, about to throw this thing down on me with these guys holding me back, I yelled out at him and I asked him, how long have you been practicing this? And he said, I just got it this morning. I mean, talk about nerves. And the guy is supposed to miss me by about this much. It's a very heavy piece of equipment that comes down like this. <laughs> so, Roger said something extremely funny that I can't repeat. And, uh, and the guy then threw the thing down. And these guys holding me found themselves way behind just to make sure I was up front. So <laughs> he didn't miss me by much. So that was a treacherous moment. But once I, had, once I was supposedly dead and uh, Q comes over and finds me and, and then Roger says, what happened to Vijay? And Q says, uh, well, it was so-and-so's men. He got him, you know. And there I am lying on the water bank and trying not to breathe. So it doesn't look like my chest is going up and down. And Roger is on me, actually pushing down on me in kind of the wrong place. So I'm trying not to laugh when I'm dead. He thought it was funny. And John kept saying, what's the problem? And I said, this is the problem. Of course, the whole set cracked up, but uh, that's the kind of fun stuff that he would do. In terms of the Octopussy press tour and, and the, the big publicity around the world, what was that like to be on? I mean, presumably you did a few different premieres here and there. And were there any really strange events you found yourself at or any that, that really sort of, you know, you, you remember as being, wow, how on earth did I end up there? Well, it opened at Odeon Leicester Square at the time. And uh, their Royal Highnesses, Prince Charles and uh, Diana, were obviously the, the guests of honour to come to the picture. And uh, I just got married, so my wife was uh, seated in the in the in the cinema, and we were all up there. I was wearing an outfit that I got married in, uh, and we had gotten special permission from Buckingham Palace that I wouldn't wear a black tie, but I would wear this Indian outfit, which is a gold brocade kind of shirvani. Anyway, the royal couple comes up, and uh, Prince Charles walks by, and he shakes hands with everyone. It was just fantastic as he walked by and chatted with each one of us, and then Princess Diana walked by and. And then, of course, she's a huge tennis fan. And so she stopped to have a good chat with me. And uh, it was obviously publicized hugely the next day in all of the papers because the tournament at Queen's Club was on at the same time as uh, the Octopussy premiere. And everyone from the tennis world wanted to come to the picture. So they had the qualifying for Wimbledon, where they have a qualifying tournament to get into Wimbledon. And if someone loses in the final round, it becomes what you call a lucky loser to get into Wimbledon. And during the course of the premiere of the picture, when I die in the film, the guy who was sitting watching the movie, one of the tennis players, who was a lucky loser to get into Wimbledon, if someone pulled out, was in the theater. And when I died in the movie, he jumps up in the cinema and says, I'm in Wimbledon, I'm in Wimbledon. <laughs> incredible moment in the theatre. Um, I guess as a way of wrapping up, you must be incredibly proud of the legacy Octopussy's had, the fact that it's still so highly regarded by many Bond fans. Do you still pinch yourself thinking, how, how did I get involved with this? Yes. I mean, first of all, even being cast in it was uh, just a bit over the top for me and to be able to accept it and, and go with it was uh, something that I had to digest and take it to some extent with a pinch of salt but know the size of it because it was, this was not just being a global tennis player, but now that you're going to, it was going to stand the test of time. So was it overwhelming? Yes. But I always respected it because the things for me that uh, have mattered most 
have been Wimbledon, where I played so many years. And 2019 was my 50th consecutive Wimbledon. And uh, a Bond picture that has stood the test of time for a similar duration. You know, 60 years of a character is not normal. And to be a part of that legacy, and become, you become family. And so, to me, I always, always respected it and admired it more than anything else. So that was Vijay Amritraj. Uh, I mean, I've made no secret of my newfound love for Octopussy. Uh, so it was a real treat to be joined by Vijay and to hear his memories of filming. The real pride that he has, obviously, for the main career that he had in tennis, but a genuine affection for the Bond franchise as well. Also, I noticed he, he left off the suggestion of the regular Zoom call for the Octopussy cast, but he didn't deny it. So uh, I really hope that is a, that is a thing. Yeah, it was lovely to meet VJ. He's such such a warm, welcoming um, man, and it was great to catch up with him about his uh, obviously his tennis career and his time on Octopussy, and, and just some great anecdotes as well. You know, chatting about the sort of light-hearted moments with Sir Roger Moore, and just the joy of being able to film on location and things like that. So it was it was fantastic. Yeah, and, and so interesting that he never sought that move into acting. It was just something that happened completely by chance and he just embraced the opportunity and clearly loved every minute of that amazing experience that he had. I'm just trying to think of other Bond film casts who, uh, if they were to have regular Zoom meetups, sort of how bizarre that might be. I'm kind of thinking of uh, Die Another Day, actually, of all things, because, of course, you know, Pierce Brosnan, Halle Berry, Dame Judy, Rosamund Pike, Toby Stevens. All of them just getting together on this Zoom call and maybe even Michael Madsen uh, coming in from America. Man, I wasn't in many scenes of this film. I don't even remember being in it. See, I, I had a similar thought. I was thinking Goldeneye would actually be quite fun. Can you imagine sort of Famke Janssen, Brosnan, um, you know, Judy Dench all, all together, you know, Sean Bean all together, just uh, just having it away together. Having it away together, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> what is happening on this Goldeneye Zoom? You know what I mean? Just having a, having fun on Zoom. That depends on your definition of safe sex. So next up is the 007 Best segment where we compile a ranking list of our seven favourites in any given Bond category. And this week, it's going to be the 007 Best Villain Deaths. So throughout many of our previous episodes, of course, we've spoken about the uh, the harrowing and emotional deaths of several ally characters. Uh, but how about the evil characters whose deaths we're supposed to enjoy? Uh, which were the best? Let's find out, starting with... Number seven. So in at number seven, Fiona Volpe from Thunderball, assassinated in Bond's place on that Nassau dance floor during the Junk Canoe. Uh, so a, a little spoiler, this list is going to be more comical than serious in tone from this point. But this is one of the great serious suspenseful deaths in the series. It climaxes a brilliant foot pursuit sequence where, you know, it's genuinely intense and Bond is completely desperately trailed by these people and he is shot in the foot. Uh, and so this is a brilliant suspenseful climax to a really, intense chase sequence I feel the bit that I find quite not ridiculous but the bullet is very very precise when it actually kills Fiona Volpe because it it literally almost goes between Bond's fingers obviously we see him dancing with her you get the sense it would have probably blown his fingers off in real life so it would have been quite a painful experience for Bond as well but no it's um, it's a very violent uh, ending for Fiona Volpe but obviously you know quite a great payoff for the character you know because of the sense of she, she's quite ruthless herself 
Yeah, I agree. I think she's been such a powerful character, hasn't she? I mean, Thunderball, not one of my favourite uh, Bond films, but that character of Fiona Volpe is really, really interesting and uh, I think a great way for her to meet her demise and a lovely bit of comedy as well. Of course, it's seriousness with the foot chase and the build-up of the music and then the, the gunshot nicely kind of let go with the comedy at the end of, uh, of She's Just Dead. The whole thing is a triumph of filmmaking. The way that the music of the, the carnival and the editing of that scene is it gets faster and faster and builds and builds until the explosion of the bullet. But actually, we don't know what's happened in all the confusion until, you know, you have that shot and Connery just moves his fingers and we see the blood suddenly come gushing out. That's the only time when we know for definite what's happened. It's a brilliant way to convey, you know, what's gone down in that scene. We should also remember that uh, while all this is happening, Rick Van Nutter is uh, supposedly entertaining Domino Deval at the Junkanoo proper. Still can't quite work out what that evening was going to be like. Yeah, I mean, we know that Czech Linda goes to KFC, but where is uh, Rick Van Nutter going? Mackey's? It'd be, be better that uh, it's Rick Van Nutter and not uh, Diamonds Are Forever Felix Lighter at this point, wouldn't it? I know I left James Bond somewhere in this carnival, but I just don't know where. I think we're stuck with this version of Felix Lighter, aren't we now, for every episode? <laughs> every episode, there's an Alan Partridge and there's a Norman Burton Felix Lighter bit. <laughs> Number six. And in at number six, we have the main villain of Tomorrow Never Dies, Elliot Carver. We we mused on how entertaining this character is in the film. Very, very over the top. A megalomaniac of uh, epic proportions in the, in the media world. Uh, so I think there was only really one way for his character to go out, and it was also in a very over-the-top fashion. I mean, similar to uh, many other deaths, I guess, in, in Bond, in the, the sense that the villain has a, a great opportunity to kill Bond and doesn't take it. He's pointing a gun at him, for God's sake, and uh, and suddenly the C-back drill, which surely can't go very fast, comes up very swiftly behind Jonathan Price and takes him out. Enjoyed this one as a child, I think, I, and I enjoy it even more as an adult, just for how ridiculous it is. I totally agree, Martin, that this is such a, you know, it's such an over-the-top death, but it's kind of so satisfying as, as a member of the audience because, you know, Elliot Carver is, is just really unpleasant as a character. And again, Jonathan Price plays him so well. And it's just brilliant the way that, you know, it's kind of, you're too late again, Mr. Bond. You know, there's literally, of all the buttons you could press on that panel, Bond just happens to find the manual override system, which somehow makes it only drive forwards and therefore executes Elliot Carver in the process. Yeah, I, lo I love the irony of his own mincer torpedo being used to kill him. It's, it's very much that classic Bond villain hoist on their own patar thing. And also the fact that he's a mincer death. We've had that a couple of times. We've got the guy who had lots of guts in on a Majesty's Secret Service, uh, Dario Benicio del Toro in a license to kill. But this is the most memorable, and partly because my problem with this bit is Carver surely has plenty of time to get away from it once Bond lets go of him. It's almost like Bond lets go, give the people what they want, and then he backs off, and Carver just stands there going, no, no, no! And it, it reminds me of the steamroller bit in Austin Powers from last week, when the, the guy just goes, stop! And you cut back, and the steamroller's like a mile away from him, but he just doesn't move. Carver's doing the same thing, he just waits there, doesn't he? No! It's the cartoonishness that makes it, I feel, Adam. Those other mincer deaths, we get a bit too much blood. But this one, no blood at all, and, uh, and Brosnan can get his hand away in time. Number five. 
So on to number five, and we have A View to a Kill's Max Zorin, perhaps the most bonkers villain we ever have in the entire franchise. He gets an equally ridiculous death um, hanging off the side of the San Francisco Bridge, of course, where he, he plunges into the, the river. You know, we, we've seen Zorin as kind of this almost cartoon-like Bond villain throughout the film, and we're now left with him sort of perched on the edge, uh, having tried to throw Bond and Stacey Sutton off the side. And one of the more ridiculous um, sort of endings that we see in, in the franchise. Yeah, and there's actually quite a nice symmetry in the film, isn't there, of uh, people falling off very famous landmarks in A View to a Kill. We've had Mayday jump from the Eiffel Tower very early on, and now, of course, we've got Max Zorin falling spectacularly from uh, the uh, Golden Gate Bridge at the uh, the climax. I have to say, I did vote for this along with you two, but it does strike me it's not even the best villain death in that whole climactic scene. Surely the best one is Herr Dr. Mortner and his stick of dynamite taking the whole blimp out. Yeah, I think I, I voted for Max Zorin on the basis that it was the whole scene, basically. So I think a kind of a joint victory for Max Zorin and Dr. Mortner here. Well, he also puts off for Max Zorin as well. He's like, Max, Max! And he just, and then obviously that just distracts Zorin and he falls off anyway. <laughs> I do love Walken's death lap in this because I don't know if it's just Walken the actor realising how funny this whole thing is or if it's just genuinely Zorin almost acknowledging that he's failed but at least he's going to have a completely spectacular demise and is sort of at peace with that. Wow, I'm falling up the Golden Gate Bridge. No one's had it this good before. I could swim with the sharks at the bottom. I mean, I think we should give an honorary mention to to the stunt team behind this whole sequence because they actually did have to climb the Golden Gate Bridge to film it. And it must have been absolutely terrifying to have to, to put that together. So whoever thought that up, you kind of kudos to them for the, the brazenness of that. Yeah, quite right, Phil. I think the uh, I think the Max Zorin can hang on, actually. I think he's just lost so much pride at being beaten up by a 50-year-old Roger Moore. <laughs> he just decides to let go anyway. Well, I was going to say, yeah, kudos to the stuntmen for going up that high. But I have to say, another thing that makes this so funny is the fact that it's a bizarrely anemic fight between uh, Bond and Zorin at the end. It's clearly them up against blue screen. They clearly can't move very much when they're on the bridge because they can't go off that little pylon. Uh, and of course, it does come after a whole cacophony of... Oh! And in at number four, it's another joint win for Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid from Diamonds Are Forever. Diamonds Are Forever finally manages to chart in something. Amazing. Uh, it's hard to decide which of the two is the funnier. Mr. Kid going up like a human sheesh kebab or uh, Mr. Wint going overboard with an exploding cake tucked up his jacksy. Oh, I, th I think Le Bon Surprise wins every time on this one. Yeah, the, fa the fact that you also get that really camp reaction, I was like, ooh, and then he just gets launched over the side. It's just, I mean, obviously for Mr. Kid, it's obviously a lot more brutal getting burnt alive effectively and having to jump into the sea. But for Mr. Wint, it's kind of, it's almost instantaneous getting blown to smithereens. Yeah, I think both of the deaths are entertaining in their own ways, but uh, I, I personally I'd plump for Mr. Wince because, of course, he's they, we have seen the romantic relationship between the two, and he basically has to watch his lover and fellow villain burst into flames and then throw himself overboard. Uh, so, and we kind of see the anger in his eyes as well. It adds a bit of an extra dimension to that final fight uh, before the cake is is unceremoniously placed up his behind. So yeah, I think uh, really entertaining deaths and just preceding the deaths as well, we get the fun little bits where we think that Mr. Wint is going to take Bond out with the uh, the corkscrew, but it's just to open the uh, the wine before the uh, the main event. 
Yeah, I mean, Mr. Winter's vengeful by the end of it, but he still has a lot of fun with that noise. He clearly enjoys that. I love the calmness of Connery in this scene because he's onto them from the very start, from, you know, that shaving of the aftershave and recognising it. And yet he does sort of allow Mr. Winter to read off the whole menu, unscrew the wine for him. Like, he wants his dinner set out properly before he then decides he's going to take them down. Of course, Tiffany Case doesn't have a clue what's going on, even with the bomb surprise. She doesn't even think about the very obvious pun there. She's like, oh, what a lovely cake, James. Number three. So just making it into the top three, at number three, we have Goldfinger, Auric Goldfinger. We've spoken about him already in today's episode. Lots of entertaining scenes with this main villain and a very entertaining death scene as well. I mean, I'm not sure, I'm not a scientist, similar to uh, Scaramanga. I'm no scientist, uh, so I I can't tell you the physics of whether that would be actually possible. I'm not quite sure whether it is, uh, but it's still a pretty iconic scene, isn't it? Auric Goldfinger being uh, sucked out of the plane. Yeah, how on earth he's managed to sort of get control of that plane and kidnap all the pilots with the CIA and the Marines stood right there outside it really is beyond me, particularly that he's public enemy number one at this point. Um, Yeah, and and of course the whole scene pays off that line earlier to Pussy Galore about the danger of firing guns in planes. It's another great Chekhov moment in Bond of setting up something to pay it off spectacularly much later on. I'm always torn which is the funniest shot in this death scene. Is it the fat man getting sucked out of that tiny plane window? Or is it the fat man just sort of flying round the cabin a bit like a hot air balloon that's sort of bursting? He's not subtle in any way at all. He would have been caught in two seconds flat and yet nobody noticed him with his little, you know, ridiculous hat on and his uniform. And and somehow that's enough subterfuge to be able to commandeer the plane. I think I might be wrong, but I think Goldfinger has a little more athletic henchman with him. I think that's one of the movie mistakes is that that henchman then falls to the ground and we never see him again. So presumably he's he's also got sucked out of the window. I do like that Goldfinger is, is obviously a fat man, but he also seems to be quite strong. I mean, his fight with Bond before the gun goes off, he's acquitting himself reasonably well. I mean, do you think Odd Job's been giving him wrestling lessons just in case, you know, such an incident as this uh, might arise? Possibly. Maybe that's sort of one of odd jobs tasks as a butler. He's also got to teach Goldfinger how to wrestle and fight people. Random task, you might say. Ow, that really hurt. Number two. So moving on to number two, we just missing out on the top spot. We have Alec Trevelyan from GoldenEye, of course, Pierce Brosnan's debut as Bond. For us, certainly one of the most memorable death scenes, brilliantly played by Sean Bean. Also, Alec Trevelyan is kind of in the early stages is seen as Bond's friend and ally and then obviously betrays him. And so we get this build up with quite violent fight sequences, quite realistic fights between the two of them. And then, of course, Bond gets the upper hand and and we get the great line to end the film, for England, James, no, for me. And, of course, he just drops him onto the uh, the ground um, for about, you assume, for about several hundred feet up in the air. Yeah, I think the location really makes this one, the, uh, the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico. In contrast to the, of course, the Golden Gate Bridge and A View to a Kill is really impressive, but we said maybe hampers the fight sequence in some way. This one, we get the equally death-defying heights, but we get it's much more the, the choreography of the fight sequence works so much better, doesn't it, I feel, going through the whole facility, walking up those, uh, those narrow ladders, and then finally, obviously, right at the end of the, the dish. 
Yeah, it was only last year that they demolished uh, the real satellite. I, I do hope that they sort of got Sean Bean back to be the one to do it. It would seem very fitting. Uh, yeah, it's a great emotional payoff, this death as well, after, as you've said, that really epic, vertiginous, violent, super violent punch up, really. And also the fact that Natalia's distraction coming up and having the gun to the helicopter pilot's head, that's the only thing that really saves Bond. I mean, 006 had beaten him. Bond had lost the fight. And that really pays off that moment they have on the beach as well, where, you know, his isolation you know natalia says it's what keeps you alone and he says no it's what keeps me alive but of course it's the fact that they double team trevelyan at the end with her hijacking the helicopter that's the only thing that saves him the fact that he is not operating alone in fact so it's a lovely little moment there with natalia as well number one and the winner in at number one is Dr. Kananga from Live and Let Die. Hey, Martin, we love a Live and Let Die thing. Now, I do diss this film a bit and I give Tom Mankiewicz a hard time. But hands down, I think even with every Roger Moore witticism and comic setup, I think this death scene is the single funniest Bond moment of all time. Raspberry blowing and all. And of course, Roger Moore's sign off line, well, he always did have an inflated opinion of himself really just caps the whole madness of this bit superbly. Oh, it's so silly, but I love it. It's just, you know, it's, it's also the sense that we don't actually get any backstory of what the gadget's doing in this one. Obviously, Q isn't present for this one. So we just have to sort of trust in Bond that he knows what each gadget's going to do, particularly the magnet on his watch and the spin store on the dial. We also get the great moment where both Kananga and Bond fall in the water and kind of Kananga is pointing furiously at the shark coming towards them. And Bond seems fairly nonchalant about the whole experience. He's, he's not really bothered. And then obviously we get the great moment where he then inflates like a whoopee cushion and, and blows up. So, yes, I think this is a really deserved one just because it's so silly. It's, you know, it's, it wouldn't have worked in real life, but we, we well, I'm, I'm certainly very grateful to whoever thought this as an idea because it's, it's certainly original. Yeah, I think he's nonchalant about the shark, Phil, because in his experience, a piece of glass naturally forms between himself and a shark whenever it goes past. So he wasn't too worried uh, about that. Uh, but yeah, I'd go along with what both of you have said. Just a ridiculous death and made funnier, I feel, because, I mean, maybe it's not so fair on Yafit Koto. We've mentioned when we reviewed Live and Let Die that he's a very serious actor who's uh, given a really emotional performance in some of those scenes. So it's just kind of a little bit funnier that his uh, his character gets this ridiculous death yeah i mean the little fight he has with roger moore before it it's it's wonderful isn't it the choreography of it jeffrey holder who played baron salmon who did it um going back to what you said as well phil it is very clumsily last minute the introduction of this compressed air bullet isn't it it's not been in the rest of the film they even have to put in that weird gag of whisper blowing up behind the sofa in order to sort of prove what it does before it's then used to devastating effect I have to say, I still feel very sorry for Whisper. I think he gets a bit of a raw deal in this. He gets, you know, left in a, a torpedo tube for, you assume, just to be left there forever. So, you know, it's, it's a bit unfair on Whisper, I think. Whisper would have been top of my list here for Villain Death, but we just don't know. We don't know whether he died. Someone open it. Someone open it. Also, how in this moment is Solitaire not looking like Carrie White at this point? I mean, why is she not absolutely drenched in like Kananga intestines and all the rest of it? I mean, he'd have gone up like Mr. Creosote in Monty Python's Meaning of Life, and yet she's spotless in this white sort of sacrificial frock. Yeah, Dr. Kananga does not have a lot of guts, apparently. Just a very inflated opinion of himself. So it's on to the James Bond Film Club. We went back in time to visit the international man of mystery, Austin Powers, last time. 
But I believe we're heading into the future this week. What film are you reviewing this time, Adam? Right, here we go. Uh, So this week we are reviewing Zardoz, the 1974 John Borman-directed, very eccentric sci-fi fantasy starring Sean Connery as a last-minute Burt Reynolds replacement. Uh, So this film really flopped badly at the time of release, but it's since been reassessed as a cult classic. Right, uh, I'm going to attempt to explain what happens in this film. Uh, So 300 years into the future of Earth, or at least County Wicklow in Ireland, where it was all filmed, uh, humans have been split into two camps. There are the Eternals, who are these sort of psychic, immortal, sexless, elite intellectuals who uh, wear very floaty, flowing, scant clothing and live in these uh, sort of walled-off Edenic paradises called the Vortex. And everyone else in humanity are the Brutals, and these are sort of animalistic savages who farm for them and sort of live a very base existence in the wild outlands. And all the Brutals worship a huge floating stone head called Zardoz. This is how the Eternals keep them in line. And the first thing Zardoz says is this booming stone head of Zardoz is, the gun is good the penis is bad because they have to protect the earth from getting overpopulated so they they have bred these exterminators and give them guns to basically hunt loads of other brutals and prevent overpopulation now sean connery is called zed and he is one such exterminator but he at the start of the film hides in the stone head and manages to cross over into the vortex where the Eternals live. He's the first brutal to do this. And when he gets there, some of them kind of want to study him, including sort of John Alderton and Sarah Kestel and their characters. But others fear that he will ultimately lead a revolution against them, including one played by Charlotte Rampling. Because if it's a weird sex film in the 70s, Charlotte Rampling by law had to be in it. Uh, now, this is a very strange and interesting film. John Borman, the director, had just made two classics of American cinema, Point Blank, this very stylish Lee Marvin thriller, and then Deliverance, the great sort of wilderness classic of masculinity in crisis. But he does that thing of much like Francis Ford Coppola and Michael Cimino would later do, in that once you've got the collateral of having made some successful films to do whatever you like, instead of treating that responsibly and carrying on making really good films, they basically just do a crazily self-indulgent mad epic. Uh, Connery's presence here is interesting. He he was certainly at this point in 74, still taking real risks to sort of reinvent himself post-Bond. But it also feeds into his penchant for naff sci-fi fantasy. I mean, he does Highlander the next decade. And much later in his career, he was still doing things like the Avengers film. Uh, there's a very bizarre kinkiness running through this. I mean, Connery's costume is quite something if you haven't seen it. It's basically a very long ponytail that sort of winds into a, a sort of red jock strap at the bottom. Uh, and there are scenes in it where Charlotte Rampling decides, because the Eternals are sexless and don't reproduce, they're going to study his erection. And so there's a scene where Charlotte Rampling is just staring at Connery, who is naked and being forced to watch scenes of two women mud wrestling and a woman taking a soapy shower. And there's a sort of recurrence of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony throughout the film as well. And that's a real sort of bad sign, because as soon as a film uses Beethoven's Seventh, the film is basically saying in code, I am a serious art film and would like to be taken seriously, please. Uh, The story is a hot mess of body worship, the price of knowledge, of genetics, the metaphysics of fake gods, and, and it builds to this apocalyptic ending, which isn't entirely earned, and the action sequences are completely bloodless and ridiculous. The visuals of it, though, are amazingly striking and surreal. The set design is brilliant. And Connery actually, weirdly, is brilliantly cast as this sort of surprisingly and secretly literate savage Christ figure. This is bonkers. It has to be seen to be believed, Zardoz. 
I mean, I feel like I should go and watch it now. It, it sounds like it's kind of a softcore equivalent of Mad Max and the Hunger Games combined, almost. Do you know what, Phil? That's pretty much bang on. I mean, if you want to skip the last four minutes and just sum it up in a sentence, you've actually done that pretty well there. A bizarre film, but certainly worth a watch, I feel, after that summary. I think, uh, personally, I prefer Hugo Drax's plan for humanity, but it might be worth a, worth a look, Zardos. So it's on to what is fast becoming one of my favourite segments, Phil's crazy, wacky, mental, illogical, take your pick of adjectives theory. What are you pitching to us today, Phil? What I thought we'd look at this week, and I think you're going to like this. So it's called, my theory this week is called For Your Direction Only. Now, when we look back upon the Bond franchise, most directors are kind of viewed with affection. You know, you think of Guy Hamilton, Lewis Gilbert, you know, Peter Hunt, John Glenn, Martin Campbell, Sam Mendes. You know, they've really made their mark on the franchise into, in a positive way and in certain cases in a negative way as well, if you consider, you know, certain misses that Guy Hamilton and Lewis Gilbert perhaps had. But really, I also wanted to think about two directors who have not had a great track record when it comes to Bond films. Now, my theory this week, I can see there's probably going to be derision already from Adam and Martin, but I think uh, Lee Tamahori and Mark Forster should team up to do their own 007 Bond film. So they should direct the next Bond film together and see what result comes out of it. Because I think it can't be any worse than their own individual efforts. Because if you think about it, Die Another Day was ridiculous. It was completely over the top. The drama wasn't there. It was kind of, you know, silly one-liners and it was silly drama and it was silly stunt work and, you know, and so on and so forth. Quantum of Solace was trying to take itself too seriously. It was trying to sort of be something it wasn't. It was trying to be sort of an Oscar-nominated epic where it was kind of Bond finding himself again and finding his place in the world almost. But what if you mixed both of their thought processes and put them together? Would it actually not mean that they wouldn't produce a bad film? They'd just produce, you know, a mediocre film. It wouldn't be great, but it wouldn't be terrible either. So this is my thought, really, for Bond 26, after we obviously know Time to Die eventually is released. Maybe this is the future of the Bond franchise. We get Lee Tamahori and Mark Forster to make a, a joint effort and see what we come up with. But again, it's only a theory. So let me get this straight, Phil. You want the two people who directed the two worst Bond films of all time by a considerable distance to be given another crack of the whip to make, in your own words, a mediocre Bond film. Not even a good one. Not even they're going to balance each other out and it's going to be a good one. You want them to actually make something that's just slightly less naff than their individual efforts. Yeah, but the trouble is, if you go to them and you say, right, we want you to make a brilliant Bond film, they're just going to make a mix of Dying Another Day and Quantum of Solace again. So the thing, because that's what they think they're brilliant, because obviously they made them. If you just go to them and say, right, lads, don't worry about it, just kind of, you know, just relax and just, just enjoy yourselves and just see what you want to do together. If the pressure's off, they're much less likely to come up with the, the likes of Dying Another Day or Quantum of Solace again. Two wrongs don't make a right here, Phil. And uh, what kind of logic is this? I mean, let's take the two worst villains, put Dominic Green and Gustav Graves in the same film. It must be an amazing film. We've got a, an amazing villainous team. Yeah, no, not really. You, you've just compounded the rubbishness by making it doubly as rubbish. But here's the thing. I would broadly be in favour of Lee Tamahori being given a second shot at a Bond film. 
because I think he he is a very good director. He's made good films. Like he's a Kiwi and Once Were Warriors, his New Zealand film, is one of New Zealand's all-time great films. So he can make a good film. I think with Die Another Day, he was hampered by the script. He was hampered by the amount of callback things he had to put in the film because of the anniversary. I think now, given free reign to just direct it how he would like to, I feel like he would probably make quite a good Bond film. Which is very true. I mean, maybe he does deserve a second chance. I do enjoy that we've, we've kind of let Mark Forster go to one side. He's kind of, he's not even on our remit. Yeah, well, Mark Forster was just always the wrong person to do a Bond film. He's not an action director. He, he is a sort of beige prestige drama director. The best film he's ever done is Christopher Robin. You know, the recent Winnie the Pooh one with Ewan McGregor. That's by far and away his best film. And that doesn't give me great confidence that he's the right person to then go on and do a Bond film. Unless he brought Winnie the Pooh with him as like Bond's new ally. We need to look for some honey gems. Looking for some honey rider rather than just honey, though. Thanks a lot, Phil, for that wacky theory. Do get in touch, listeners, if you agree with that one or you vehemently disagree, which is perhaps more likely. Uh, so we'll move on now to the next segment, which is Delve Deeply. This week, we're going to delve deeply into India. There's kind of two places that I'd like to focus on in the uh, in the city of Udaipur. Many of the scenes from Octopussy there kind of split their time, as uh, as Vijay was telling us, between the location shots and, uh, and Pinewood Studios. So uh, in Udaipur, you can uh, visit the, the five-star luxury of the, the Taj Lake Palace, which of course acts as Octopussy's female-only lair, and actually quite reasonable, the $400 a night to stay there, certainly quite reasonable compared to the, the GoldenEye estate that we looked at in our last episode. Uh, obviously, it is an island location, so there's a private jetty that you have to go through, uh, so do check if you are visiting. Do obviously check the specific details and permissions that you'll need to have beforehand. And uh, also, I wanted to focus on the the other main area of the Monsoon Palace, which is actually slightly to the west of Udaipur in the uh, Aravali Hills. This place was constructed back in 1884, and it stands at uh, nine stories high. This, of course, was the residence of Kamal Khan. Uh, quite a lot of the exterior shots in Octopussy were filmed on location there. Uh, so when Bond is being hunted by Khan, the chase through the forest, his encounter with all of the, the forest creatures. But actually, many of the indoors scenes were shot at Pinewood Studios but still visiting the palace can be a, quite an experience open eight until six every weekday and you can go for a one hour visit uh, which is 80 rupees for uh, for foreigners or 10 rupees uh, if you're Indian generally looking at the reviews it seems like November to February time is the best time to visit of course India gets uh, rather hot in the summertime so uh, if you don't like the humidity it might be better to visit during the uh, the winter months and you can also visit the talking of the animals that we encounter in the film there is a wildlife sanctuary quite close to the uh, the palace as well which might be worth a, a look and of course you can go off for a boat ride at Lake Pishola but uh, obviously be sure not to take the economy tour or it could get uh, quite wet. Uh, I'd certainly, I've never visited India, but uh, I certainly like to go and, uh, and visit those locations. Yeah, I'd, I'd the same. I'd absolutely love to visit India one day. Not, not sure when I'd ever get to do that at the, the moment, but yeah, it would be absolutely phenomenal. So it's over to Q Branch. What questions did we have from our listeners this week, Phil? 
Yes, thanks very much, Martin. So it's a little bit different this week because um, I wanted to focus really on you know, Time to Die. We finally had the promising news that it's now been moved again, but this time from October to the 30th of September for its cinematic release. Obviously, with the future of, of the film, it's still a bit unsure, but surely this has got to be great news for the franchise. Oh, yeah, I mean, I think so, Phil. I mean, it would be kind of disappointing if it's not a very good film and people will be thinking, well, I'm glad it was delayed. Maybe we didn't need to see it. But uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully it will match our expectations. I know people have been waiting such a long time for this one. But uh, yeah, I mean, hopefully we're seeing some light at the end of the tunnel now. So, and, and interestingly, Mission Impossible 7 looks to have gone back to November. So is actually this nothing to do with the coronavirus pandemic and everything to do with the two spy action films now wanting to be released at a decent distance from each other? So one's gone back a month and the other's gone forward a week. Not that I'm being cynical about this or anything. But I, I still think this has to be good news for the franchise. People are getting vaccinated and it feels like things are now turning around for everyone. You know, it's, it's been a pretty difficult time, not only for the film industry, but also for, you know, for commercial cinemas as well. It's, yeah, it's been really tough and obviously for, for a lot of other industries as a whole. Uh, yeah, 100%. It absolutely is. And yeah, hopefully the vaccines sort of do their job. And yeah, hopefully we do get back to normal as and when everyone has said we can. So just another quick sort of add on to that question. So with the news that obviously there is still going to be a slight delay, no time to die. Would you guys want to see more kind of Bond content on other sites? So would you want maybe kind of documentaries on Netflix to come in the future just about no time to die? Or do you think that's one way that the Bond franchise could go to kind of whet people's appetites in the meantime? Well, I don't think they'll be able to do that because Netflix, I just don't think, would, would have the rights to anything. Um, I'd like to see classic Bonds re-released. They did, when they reopened Briefly Cinemas last year, they did reruns of things like the Star Wars trilogy, Jurassic Park, and then Home Alone came along a bit later in the year. I'd love to see some re-releases just so we've got the opportunity to actually see some of the classic Bonds on the big screen again, you know, and wet our whistle before No Time to Die. I think that would be a really fun thing for them to do. Yeah, I'd agree with that, Adam. I think that would be a be a good route to go down. Interesting that, of course, DVD is now becoming less popular with uh, the advent of streaming sites. So we are kind of missing, aren't we, the uh, the DVD extras that became uh, a staple of uh, of that medium. I think I'd like to see more documentary styles, but yeah, as you say, Adam, maybe the uh, the rights might be hampering any kind of Netflix or Apple deal. I have to say, the DVDs I've still got, I've not upgraded them in like a decade now with uh, the Bond films. They have these brilliant running documentaries on them, which Patrick McNee, Godfrey Tibbet narrates. And they're really great. They're like half an hour making ofs, and they get all the actors back who were still around at that time. And it's most of them, to be fair, when they filmed it. Those are really good, yeah. There's ones on YouTube, actually. There's a great one of Octopussy, where the cast are being interviewed by, I think it's a local BBC news team, and it's um, it's just great, the sort of reactions that uh, Sir Roger Moore and some of the cast have to, uh, to being interviewed is quite entertaining. So I'd like them to kind of bring back some of those archive pieces of footage just for, for a few memories, I think. Is that the one where they're at the Neem Valley, Phil? And Sir Roger's just kind of going, I'm a spy, this is the train station. Yeah, like no one's aware it's the sixth time he's played this role. There's a great one from Goldfinger as well, like a really old black and white one, and Connery's doing a very similar thing of trying to tease the plot. So like, we've got this guy and he's going to break into Fort Knox, but he's not going to steal anything. He goes a bit into Ian McKellen mode, Sean Connery, in that series. This isn't really Fort Knox, it's Pinewood Studios. And I'm not really James Bond. I'm an actor called Sean Connery. And how do I know what to say? <laughs> 
the words are written. I'm not going to do the whole thing again. So that was our, our cube crunch for this week. So thanks very much, guys, for your thoughts on, on those questions. Of course, if you do have your own questions, suggestions, or theories, do please get in touch with us on our usual social media channels, or you can contact us on our um, Gmail, rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. Okay, thanks, Phil. And it is right back to you because it's the quiz, the end of today's episode. You are the quiz master. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! So this week we're going to play a game called Quotes of Solace. So you can probably imagine what that entails. I'm going to give you both four questions each, and all you have to do is tell me the film that these quotes are from. So they're all obviously James Bond films. You just have to give me the name of the film. So, Adam, you're going to kick us off. So, for question one, again, difficulties vary throughout the questions. But here we go. So, question one, what are you doing here? Are you looking for shells? First, though, Quotes of Solace sounds a bit like a sort of grief counselling website, doesn't it? That quote's from Dr. No. (laughs) It is, yes, correct. It is Dr. No. And yes, maybe that is a new new avenue, James Bond's counselling service. (laughs) James Bond's words for the bereaved. (laughs) Okay, Martin, your first question. So tell me, James, do you still sleep with a gun under your pillow? That is Tomorrow Never Dies. It is correct. That was when Paris Carver is uh, interrogating Bond at Elliot Carver's swanky party. Adam, for your second question, just a slight stiffness coming on due to the altitude, no doubt. Well, thanks for giving me one that's on the show literally every week, Phil. Uh, That's on a Majesty's Secret Service. I thought you might enjoy that one. It is on a Majesty's Secret Service, so you go back into the lead with two to one. So, Martin, your second question get a little bit tougher. Four- Hang on, I said the, the, the difficulty varies. You give Adam the ones that are in the show every week, and I get the difficulty. Yeah, basically, yeah. So, Martin, your second question. I shall look forward personally to exterminating you, Mr. Bond. I was going to go for Dr. No, but we've just had that one, so I'll go You Only Live Twice. It is. It was Blofeld to Bond when he's in the volcanic lair, so that was correct. It was You Only Live Twice. So, neck and neck, Adam, on to question three. You know I've missed your sparkling personality. Well, because I didn't immediately recognise it, it must be one of the films I haven't seen very much, so I think this is to Zhao in Die Another Day. It is. So, obviously, Zhao gets the diamonds blown into his skulls, so that is correct. It was Die Another Day. So, Martin, on to question three. Oh, I travel, a sort of licensed troubleshooter. I think it's licensed to kill. You you would have thought that, but no, it's actually Thunderball. So Yeah, it's as, he, it's as he's leaving Shrublands, isn't it, to uh, the nurse? Ah, uh, yeah. So a bit of a tricky one. So, Adam, if you get this one, you have won this week. So look upon your work, mother. Nice easy one to finish. That's Skyfall. It is indeed. It's, of course, Raul Silva um, against M from Skyfall. So, Adam, you win this week's quiz. Are you now in the lead of the uh, the Cubby Cup, I believe? I believe so. I think that takes me to three. You're still uh, marooned on two, Phil. Martin's still with one, but my quiz next week. So very much all to play for still. So uh, thanks a lot for joining. Thanks a lot for listening to us for this week's episode. Do take a look at our social media pages. Uh, send us your questions or observations, theories to uh, rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com or any of our social media pages. So that's it for this week. I was Martin. I was Adam. And I was Phil. Hope you enjoyed the show. Good night.
gun is good. The gun is good. The penis is evil.